you know, you've got probably decades worth of leadership experience, but crammed into four to 20 years that you did, but you lack some of those hard skills. So you have to try to find the right position and the right job that is interested in finding their integrator or, you know, the person that can be thrown into a situation and make things happen and, you know, develop relationships and develop a team and build cohesion to achieve, you know, desired end states. So I think the biggest thing that SODIF does, though, is kind of helps you focus on what that is. Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. All right, so we have a really interesting podcast for you today that you're going to enjoy. Colin Hamill is the Chief Operations Officer of Friendly Automotive, came out of the Special Operators Transition Force, which is a group that takes people from the military with high-level military experience and brings them into the operations side of businesses. Um, And they've got a really, really intriguing program that he's going to talk to us about. Uh, He's also going to talk about their using of the systems of scaling up and EOS traction, talks about his focus around driven results. Um, how they're operating 30 Midas stores and, and operating in, frankly, a market where it's tough to hire a lot of the key employees that you need to be out there working in the automotive shops. Um, it also talks a little bit about some intriguing payment plan options as well, where they figured out some of the core friction in their model of getting new customers. So I think you're going to love the episode. We'll see you on the inside. So Colin, welcome to the Second Command podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Uh, congrats on the million episode mark that you guys have been uh rolling through now you guys are doing a great job thank you very much yeah that was just a um a big milestone that we just hit last week i wasn't even aware we were coming up on it um i knew we were over seven hundred and fifty thousand, but somehow in the last few months we really um started to even leapfrog that and the guy on my team jason torres who's been running managing all the podcasts for me since day one kind of uh, announced it as a surprise it was a good surprise yeah, no, it's great when you hit the compounding growth phase, you know, all the slow slog into, you know, all of a sudden hit your stride. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm looking forward to, to learning from you today. You've got a pretty unique role. I learned about you when I was on um, your CEO's podcast, Brian Beer's podcast a couple of weeks ago about my new book, The Second Command. And when he was telling me about the group of automotive shops that you run and the kind of business that you're in. And then also just the uniqueness um, of, of kind of the family enterprise and I'll, I'll ask some questions about all these things. I really was curious to get the second command's perspective. So thank you for showing up today. Appreciate it. Yeah, no, glad to join the team here. So what was your background in getting there first? We'll kind of start with that and then I'll, I'll go around a little bit. But how did you end up in this uh, in this role there with, with the Friendland Automotive Group? Yeah, so I think I'm probably an atypical, what you would consider an atypical way of getting there. I spent my kind of formative years in the military, both as an enlisted Marine and then went to college and then did 16 years as an Army officer within special operation and infantry units. And then as I was transitioning out, I happened into, you know, phenomenal organization, special operation, special operators transition foundation. And it's a charity that essentially places people with special operations backgrounds into the business world, um, where you can kind of leverage a lot of your leadership skills and then fill in a lot of the gaps, uh, quickly 
that you might have on the business side. So I ended up getting linked up with Brian and Chris through SODIF, you know, kind of abbreviation, and then um, ended up starting about seven months ago. And then I have been the COO for the company since then. That's an amazing kind of journey. When when Brian mentioned that um, special operation transition group, um, and I'll link to that in our show notes. What was the um, what were kind of the, the core skills or the core training that they gave you to, I guess, transition from you know the military operation side into the private sector military side? And and were there also just some skills you know around running companies that they gave you as well? Because it sounds like a bit of a real world MBA. Yeah. So a lot of it's just trying to figure out, you know, like it's strange, it's strange to describe, but when you're in the military, you know, like you create options for yourself by the perform your individual performance. And then uh, the more importantly, the performance of your team and what you're able to do. And no matter whether that's leading four people or, you know, 400 or 4,000, you know, you kind of produce options for yourself, but in the end, the army kind of has its plan, you know, and gives you the options, but then, when you transition, one of the biggest issues that veterans have is when you transition out of the military, you know, like, especially if you're combat arms, so you're like an infantry guy or, you know, a ranger or special forces or, you know, a SEAL or whatever it is, you know, or even, you know, a tanker, you know, driving tanks around, like there's not a civilian equivalent of infantry guys attacking a hill, you know, to seize an objective. Right. So you kind of have to, but, you know, like you have a lot of the intangibles, but the biggest gap is you lack some of those hard skills. You know, you've got, you know, probably decades worth of leadership experience, but crammed into, you know, the four to 20 years that you did, but you lack um, some of those hard skills. So you have to try to find the right position and the right job that is interested in, you know, finding their integrator or, you know, the person that can be thrown into a situation and, you know, make things happen and, you know, develop relationships and develop a team and build cohesion to achieve, you know, desired end states. So I think the biggest thing that SODIF does, though, is kind of helps you focus on what that is, you know, because like I said, there's not a linear one-to-one transition. So you spend a lot of the time looking inward, you know, for the first time in your career, you know, it could be 20, 30 years. The first time you really looked inside and said, like, what do I want to do? Do I want to work with four people in the same room every day? Or do I want to work with 200 and go to 30 different locations, you know, a month? Or do I want to work, you know, be an inch wide and a mile deep at, you know, Exelon or Pico or Amazon or, you know, like a Fortune 500 company? And probably the greatest strength of SODIF is that you know, I, when you, most of the time when veterans get out, you think like fortune 500 company, but you know, like 80% of the jobs are resident within companies that are 200 people or less, but those are the companies that you can't find unless you know somebody or unless you network or unless you do, you know, a ton of information calls and LinkedIn and, you know, going back to your hometown or wherever you want to settle and, you know, going to different organizations, like you'll never find those. Like I would have never found right. uh, Brian and Chris Beers, you know, owners of 30 minus locations from Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, right outside of Kansas City, you know, for me. Now, did, so do they operate a little bit like an executive search firm and a little bit like a training um, group as well? Is that kind of the hybrid that they would run or sort of, I mean? Yeah, so they have uh, people like Melba Holiday, uh, outstanding, you know, kind of performance coach for, you know, executives and uh, C-suite level business. So they utilize their services to kind of help 
you know, run through all the personality tests and kind of determining what you want to do and where you want to do it. And then, um, you know, there's another team that helps link you up. So, you know, like we're lucky enough to have a ton of Patriots, you know, in the United States and there's tons of, you know, business leaders that, you know, recognize that they have both the financial need to find, you know, people of talent, not necessarily me, but like people with actual talent, but then also, you know, like they want to give back, like they feel like, you know, they live in a great nation and they're proud of. So, you know, like for them, they want to, you know, give back also. So it may not be giving you a job, but, you know, it may be linking you with, you know, Tony or Frank or Tina or, you know, Alexandra, you know, somebody that does need it, you know, so it's, it's all about networking. It's no different than getting a regular job, but it's just a little bit more time consuming coming out of the military when you don't, you know, your resume is never going to make it past. I mean, the secret, I mean, the open secret is like, my resume would never make it past to a fortune 500 company because, you know, a lot of the KPIs that they're looking at for somebody, you know, sure. are just not going to, I'm not going to make it through the, you know, AI computer or whatever. Yeah. And and that's kind of what I'm curious about as well is, I mean, you've, you've clearly been able to do that transition. So what was the transition like for you to, to leave the military and come into the business world? What did you have to unlearn and what did you have to learn? I think it's as much about leveraging your strengths and then figuring out where you're weak at. So, you know, like any military operation, I kind of went into planning, you know, about two years out, I kind of made the decision, you know, family-wise, I'd done eight deployments and had three kids, you know, so wanted to be a little bit more physically present and then like probably mentally, emotionally present with them. So, you know, I made a final move to Fort Leavenworth, Kansas to a job that, you know, would kind of be feast or famine. So I'd be gone about 135 days a year. But then when I was back, I would have a lot more time and predictability and I would be like more of one of the cogs in the wheel versus, you know, the cog turning the wheel. So it was a great opportunity. I kind of had like about a year and a half where, you know, if I wasn't gone working, I had a lot of time. So, you know, like I'd started canvassing. I've read about five or six, you know, transition books. I did about 115 information calls with people from LinkedIn and from family and friends and friends of friends and people that I'd kind of met, you know, everything from, you know, the power and energy industry to retail to Wawa, you know, to anything out there trying to find an opportunity and where I fit best. And then luckily enough, at the end of my transition, I kind of had one of my old squad leaders from the Ranger Regiment that actually recommended that I talk to the SODIF organization. You know, I think a lot of times, you know, even despite what you've done in the military, I mean, I think everybody has like imposter syndrome. And I kind of thought like, well, there's people that need it more than I do and that deserve it more than I did. So it wasn't something that I considered until he put me in contact with the organization. Then they ended up accepting me and then um, I ended up doing about five or six months with them figuring out they give you like exercise each week and then you kind of get feedback and then figure out where you want to focus on industry wise and geographic wise. And then they start networking you in with the people that they know. And then I did four block, which is another military transition program in the Philadelphia area. So another program where you kind of each week you meet with a different fortune 500 company for 12 weeks. And then you kind of get a bunch of introductions to people so I kind of did that. And then I ended up interviewing with Brian and Chris. And then, you know, I think for me, like I tried to leverage my strengths, which is like leadership planning. So like essentially people processes and training. 
And as they were looking to scale their business, that was one of their biggest gaps is, you know, like Brian is a brilliant thinker and, you know, planner and can kind of visualize the future and where he wants it to be. But, you know, like he's only one person. So he was looking for somebody to be down and in and, you know, spend 98% of the time focusing on developing the in, internal portion of the, you know, the organization. I think like you kind of classified as like the coach, you know, portion in your book. But, you know, to be 100% down and in so that he can focus on, you know, where we go 6, 12, 18, three years, five years from now. So, and then I, you know, was able to kind of take a, I took a, one of their certificates from Cornell on finance to kind of, you know, a three-part course to kind of get spun up on the KPIs and everything that I didn't know and learn what credit and debits really are, not like your credit card. So, you know, that was like a good kind of bridge there. And then I ended up doing a two-month internship with a uh, world-class entrepreneur, former VP of Goodyear um, that ran a big O tire, $6 million operation, one of the biggest in the nation in Topeka, Kansas. So, you know, I got a world-class view, you know, everything. I swept the I swept the floors and, you know, filed paperwork or whatever you needed, but kind of got a world-class education for two months. So you said something about the military that was interesting. You said you have to kind of make your own opportunities for yourself in the military. But it sounds like everything you did post-military was exactly that as well, like really trying to make your own opportunities. So I'd imagine a lot of people don't put in this kind of work at all to try to find a great career move. Yeah, I think, and I think like everything in the world, it's, you know, you get into it, what do you put out of it? And if you put a lot of preparation in and try to set the conditions to be successful and, you know, meet people and network, like I, I mean, if you asked me if I wanted to talk to 115 strangers and try to win them over and, you know, show that I had some potential and get them to introduce me to somebody else and, you know, build relationships and everything that probably would have been the 115th thing on my list to do. But, you know, I think it's all about discipline, you know, and I'm weak in many areas, but I can, you know, do the hard, arduous things sometimes that I don't want to do. I can force myself to do it. So, you know, I think that was that preparation is, you know, what can make veterans successful transitioning into like nonlinear job fields, you know, if they put the work in. And then obviously a guy got extremely lucky with soda. Well, yeah, I mean, you found the right path, but you made your own luck as well. So what do you think it was that Brian and Chris noticed in you that had them take that leap? I mean, you hadn't, had you worked in the automotive space before? Had you worked, you know, in, in this industry even before as a kid, or was this all completely new as well? No, I worked food service and uh, Abercrombie and Finch folding clothes when I was, you know, a kid and in college and worked at an oil, you know, pipeline company, weed whacking like three miles a line for like nine hours a day. So I don't think that brought any tangible skills that they were looking for. But um, I mean, I think they were looking for somebody that had the ability to plan things. And, you know, luckily, I mean, there's nothing that's linear, but when you look at, you know, you compare an army battalion, you know, like I was the executive officer, essentially like the two IC of the organization. And like, we had five companies of about 120 to 150 people that operated geographically, you know, disaggregated or separated. And then, you know, within those companies, we had, you know, three to four platoons, which are 30 people size elements that operated also independently and everything. And then when you look at, you know, Prendling Group, we have 30 stores that are divided into, you know, four or five districts of four to seven 
locations that are generally geographically, you know, near one another, but separated. So, you know, when you look at it, there is a lot of similarities. And then, mm-hmm. you know, like I, when I was the two IC of the, or the battalion or the 600 person organization, like I had to set policy, you know, I wasn't an expert in any of the areas that I was dealing with, you know, like administrative or medical or, you know, whatever the staff components were, but you know, I still had to kind of control them and, you know, implement, ensure that they were rowing in the same direction as my commander, or, you know, in this case, the COO wanted, you know, the CEO wanted. So, I mean, there's a lot of similarities, but, you know, and we had to achieve KPIs for us. It's like being ready to deploy for war, you know, so you're trying to figure out those same cogs that you can turn to increase readiness, you know, which is not all that dissimilar to now, like me trying to figure out profitability, mixing, you know, people processing training, you know, what can we do to accelerate the growth to, you know, grow our top line and bottom line. So, I mean, it's completely different, but, you know, it's all people processes and training. So there's a lot of overlap. A lot of overlap. It seems like this is a big missing opportunity for a lot of companies in the U.S. to actually connect with SODIF as well. So again, we'll link to it in the show notes and explain to people why there's um, that huge opportunity for them to reach out. And it's not just COOs that they can place either, is it? It's like to all, all levels of business that they build to place people in. Yeah, no, I mean, there's, you know, project managers um, within the Philly area. You know, there's another guy, you know, this beast, Derek, that's uh, doing amazing things, going to Wharton Business School, running, you know, uh, helping as a COO, running a real estate empire all around the tri-state area. Uh, there's another guy that's been... Uh, this local here that's kind of running the training program for a big entrepreneur. So, I mean, it definitely works great, you know, trying to match, a, uh, you know, a visionary to a, an integrator, you know, somebody with, you know, you kind of said in your book, you know, it doesn't, you don't have to be a subject matter expert, but if you understand, you know, how to run organizations, plan and lead and develop and train and hire, then, you know, you can make it happen. Yeah. Now you mentioned the integrator a couple of times. So I don't, do you guys clearly, do you follow the EOS, the entrepreneurial operating system by Gina Wickman and the book Traction, or is this just something you picked up and read along the way? Yeah, yeah, we did. Between my first and second interview, they mentioned it on the phone interview. And then I read it in seven days before we met in Philadelphia. So I got uh, between that and uh, rocket fuel. And then now we've actually been, I actually have it here, scale. I think you mentioned in your last episode, scaling up. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like what we started transitioning more to. It's like a, you mentioned it in the episode, but it's a little bit more nuts and bolts. Yeah. You know, to where we're trying to go. We're at 30 trying to grow from here. So, well, and how many employees do you have now across the 30 locations? Uh, we get about just over 200. Yeah. So you're at a size when scaling up starts to make sense. When you're a lot less, when you're kind of less than 50, 70 people, I think scaling up is almost too complicated. The systems are too, too much. Um, and that's kind of where EOS tends to break down as well. So it's a good it's a good leap that you're making. So what's it like working with two brothers that are kind of um, and and then in the, the father who started the business is he still actively involved or possibly involved in the business? Yeah. So Tracy and Herb were the two original owners, and they're still involved. Um, you know, they're like part time. They help me out, helps out with some of the maintenance, and he's you know like a whiz with all the you know equipment and everything. So he helps out with that. And then Tracy, you know, as we get new locations, they kind of help integrate them and help go around and keep an eye on things and everything. And then Brian and Chris are the two brothers, and luckily, you know, like they kind of have their distinctive strengths and like areas that they kind of 
you know, focusing on Brian's, you know, kind of the visionary of the company, a majority, and then his brother also, but he, you know, is mapping out. He's doing a lot of the discussions with other franchisees when we're acquiring new locations and is very involved with TBC, the corporation that owns the Midas franchises. You know, he sits in on a lot of the boards and everything. And then Chris is more of, you know, he went to Vanderbilt, big tech guy, understands he does all our scripts and everything for all our automated reports and um, is running kind of the back office now as we're running a transition with our CFO uh, position. So he kind of took back over a lot of the backside administrative tasks and everything and has kind of been getting everything in order there. And then they both kind of overlap in the interest of helping to perform the company. But, you know, like they also have a lot of their own separate interests. So it actually works pretty fluidly. What's it like working within a franchise organization as well? I mean, I, I've been a part of a number of them. I was the second in command for 1-800-GOT-JUNK, but I've never worked on the franchisee side at such a, a large company franchisee. What's it like being you know, a professionally managed business inside of a, a franchise group? Are there other franchisees that are your size as well, like groups of, of locations? And do you spend time learning with them as well? Yeah, so we're, I think, the third or the fourth largest uh, franchisee. You know, like there's all, there's ones that are upwards of 100, and then we're kind of the the next tier down um, at 30 locations. So, uh, but I, I would say that it's probably the best of both worlds because, you know, like when we take over, you know, a location, like we already have an operating system, you know, like we're already a lot of this stuff is familiar. So it makes things a lot easier and streamlined and everything for the royalties that you pay. I mean, like you pay a percentage, definitely. But you know, for that, you get a lot of value. And then you get a network of people that are doing the exact same thing. And I think that that's, you know, among the biggest advantages to be in a franchisee, you know, like you have a network of people dealing with the same problems and the same issues, you know, generally, then, you know, if you have a question like, hey, what are you guys using for your onboarding? Or, you know, what are you using when you're onboarding new technicians or training technicians? And then there's, you know, 10 other people that have a base document that you can try and look at. You know, we've got uh, Mark Smith down in Virginia, you know, that runs a world-class organization um, that's, you know, at the cutting edge of customer service and the customer community relations and using that to grow the business. So we talk, you know, Brian talks with him all the time. And then, and then like we have another franchisee that works in, um, you know, the same general area of us. He's on a little bit different side of Philadelphia and South Jersey. So it gives us somebody to benchmark ourselves next to if we wonder like, hey, are our are we doing all we can with the calls and everything? Like we can look at Sam's group and then figure out, you know, where did his call volume increase or, you know, like where, where his sales and GP, you know, like there's transparency in a lot of the numbers too. So it's great to benchmark yourself against peers, you know, which sometimes you can't do if you're a single ice cream shop trying to figure out how you're doing. Yeah. It's interesting. You also see the benefits both of, of being a part of a franchise organization where you, you even said there are, there's, you know, valuable benefits of of being a part of it. And that's kind of what the royalties are paying for, whereas so many people have to make that transition because at some point the royalties are a tax and they're kind of frustrated with it. But then you make the transition to realize, you know, you're a part of a 70-year-old brand with, you know, with a lot of good tradition and systems and best practices. And it just makes things faster and easier. And I'm glad you recognize that and follow it. 
So you said something earlier, and I can't remember what it was related to, but you said something about imposter syndrome. And it's interesting that almost every COO that's in our CO alliance, and we've got our largest members, like one and a half billion in revenue, our average members around 40 million. Um, they all feel like imposters every day. So what do you do to, to not feel like an imposter? You know, when that kicks in, which is normal, right? At some point, how do you get yourself, you know, through that to, okay, I've got the confidence again and I'm going to keep growing. I think for me, you know, like when I came in, I mean, a couple of the people that I work with, you know, said like, yeah, we wanted your job. So like when you come in, it's like, and then, you know, like for me, like I don't, I don't know. I'm not too focused on myself most of the time. Like I'm trying to, I do have an ego and everything like everybody, but you know, like I'm focused on extremely focused on driven results and trying to help grow the organization. And, you know, I don't think many people think that I'm trying to be the best store manager, or I hope, you know, people don't think I'm trying to be the best store manager or, you know, the best district manager. Like I'm trying to be the best COO for the organization. So you know, like I'm trying to keep the pulse on the business and see what's working at some stores and then spread it to the others and then evaluate, you know, what is working, you know, training wise at one district and apply that to the others and kind of be the lubricant that you're the accelerant that accelerates growth from one district to another and not, you know, have silos and, you know, creates a, a team effort. And I think that when I focus on, helping the team, then, you know, I'm not really worried about myself or my insecurities or whatever. And I think I just try to focus down and in, and then, you know, I let everything else kind of work its way out. Good. How about yourself and your skill sets as a leader? What are you focusing on to grow as a leader now? Do you have any specific areas that you're working on getting better in? Yeah, I think definitely. I mean, the KPIs were kind of, you know, a steep learning curve. And then, you know, for us, it's all these like cogs that turn the cogs that turn the cogs. So, you know, as we're, I mean, I think for me, I'm just trying to figure out all the relationships. And then, I mean, there's an aspect of technology, you know, that I'm trying to figure out with RO Writer, which is kind of like our POS kind of order taking system. So I'm definitely trying to get better in that. I'm not trying to be the best store manager, but, you know, when the store is, if I'm in a store and it's busy, like I want to be able to check people in, I want to be able to help them. I think for us, financing is key. You know, like we know that the more, you know, the economy is changing and that, providing, you know, people the opportunity not to have to come out of pocket two or 3000 when like 80% of the population doesn't have over $400 for emergency purchases. So, you know, like I'm trying to, I throw myself out there. I start talking to the customers about, you know, payment options and payment plans that we offer and try to make it affordable for anybody to get, you know, home safely and drive their families safely. So, I mean, I think I'm trying to get better at that. And then just the overall business, you know, like Brian's slowly bringing me into some of the acquisition sides are trying to figure out, you know, like when other franchisees are trying to exit the business, like how we do it and the costs and everything. And then I think the last thing is kind of the financials. So understanding the fixed and variable costs. I mean, obviously labor is, you know, the big one, but, you know, understanding what we can do saving with through my training program so we can save on workman's comp and preventing accidents and injuries and all this stuff. You know, I'm, trying to figure out all the different cogs that can help us help more customers, you know, pour more money in our team's pocket and grow the business. Yeah, I like that. I like the focus on it as well. You mentioned, you know, the, the labor being the biggest component right now of the the, um, the overhead of the cogs. Is, is it tough to hire trades right now? And what are you doing? How are you finding good people in this space? Oh, I mean, 
if you got any hints, I'll take them. I mean, I think it's right now the you know, the biggest challenge we have is people, you know, we've seen, you know, we have a store all the, I mean, we see it frequently with our stores, you know, we'll have a store that's doing $12,000 a week. And then we change just the manager and the store goes up to $25,000 a week. Wow. And it's like the, the four walls are the same, the, you know, couple hundred thousand dollars worth of equipment's the same, the tools are the same, the techs are the same, but people matter. And I mean, I think that's why, like in your book, you talk about, you know, a key role of the COO is to try to, you know, get not C minus, you know, to B talent, but to get the top talent in there. And, you know, like we see that it pays dividends. So, I mean, I think for us, the management side, we're trying to, we've seen great success in just networking you know, we find a great leader that joins, you know, as a store manager. And then, you know, we try to ask them like, Hey, do you know anybody else, you know, after they've kind of have an established track record within the company, like, Hey, do you know anybody else that, you know, would be a great fit for our organization? And we're definitely not everybody's cup of tea. You know, like we have our focus and how we run the business and we kind of want people that can come in and excel in that environment. And we do have high expectations. So we do try to you know, match with people that want to, you know, help more people and grow. So, you know, like it is, you know, a smaller pool that we're looking for, but, you know, I think, sure. I think networking has been key for us. And then the trades, I think if, you know, one aspect is we try to keep the people that we can, and we try to do that by incentivizing. So, I mean, for us, we're, you know, like our pay, we pay, we basically have uncapped pay for managers and our tax. So, you know, like the tax, I mean, we have tax that make, you know, way more than most of the rest of the organization each week because they do exceptional work and they do quality work and they help a lot of customers. So I think paying for performance and, you know, incentivizing, like we try to incentivize at all levels. Once they reach a certain amount, like every dollar gets divided up among the leaders in the store and the techs in the store. And then we find that, you know, if you do that and then you try to make a great work environment, then you keep, you know, the good people. And then the people that don't match with us, you know, like we try to not make them miserable and make them conform to what we want. We try to provide them the opportunity, but then, you know, if they're not a fit, you know, we know that everybody is capable of being exceptional somewhere, but it might not just be for us, you know, it might be at a mom and pop store, you know, so we try not to make them miserable because like we have high expectations. We want to grow. We want to help more customers. And if you don't want that, there's a mom and pop, you know, store down the road that would probably be happy doing five to seven customers a day. And you would be the best manager for them, for that, you know, store owner that could pull out of the business. And so like, they'd be happy. There's probably a government automotive shop. You can go work for a government automotive shop. They'll be happy. Yeah. But I mean, like finding the right people is I think the hardest part, you know, like there's, there's definitely people out there, but you know, finding the people that are, it's a win-win for us and them. And we want them to be happy working for us and come in energized and pumped up every day. You know, not every day is going to be amazing, but you know, like we want them to be excited. I'll give you a quick tool. Let me, I'll give you a quick bonus tool that could work for, to help on the recruiting side that a lot of our CEO Alliance members have started using. What's the, um, what's the rough total comp that one of your guys in the shop is making, you know, annual? Um, I mean, the tax range anywhere from probably like 40, uh, probably like 45,000. I mean, up to, I mean, they can make another six figures. We have techs that are, you know, making significant money. Okay, so let's, let's say that it's 60,000 a year just for, for easy math. So 60,000 a year, the average tech is, is making in the shop. So you put a bonus in place for any of your current employees who recruit someone to come and work for you, whether it's from a competitor or somebody they know in the industry or any of their friends, but anybody that they recruit that comes to work for you, they're going to get a $30,000 bonus. 
So they're going to get half of the annual comp of the person. So it's 30,000, but it's going to get paid out 6,000 a year, five years in a row, as long as they are still with the company. And as long as the person they recruit stays with the company and it's paid out at month 12, month 24, month 36, month 48, month 60. It becomes a really incredible recruiting advantage for you. It also becomes a point of retention for both people. And you can have some assurity that they're going to at least stay till the 12 month mark. Yeah. But the when the average lifespan of an employee is around two and a half years, your total real exposure is only about 12 to 20 grand. But the, the reality that you can bring this big pipeline in and pay the people that you've got a little bit more keeps them happy too. It's a really interesting model if you kind of play around with that. Yeah, we're definitely going to look into that. We've been doing something on a, a micro scale, you know, doing on a much smaller, you know, a couple hundred dollars. And then if they, yeah. you know, 30, 60, 90, but that's interesting. I didn't thought about the, I wrote that down, the larger domain. It has to be a much larger amount. So it's half the value paid out over five years, paid at the end of each 12 month period. And then it becomes meaningful. And then these guys are chasing it down. But when it's a couple hundred, couple hundred, it's never meaningful enough. So it never really, really works. But anyway, play with it and try it out. If it tried in one random city and see if it goes before you roll it out system wide. So you talked about the franchise repairs and, and um, the payment options. I think it's intriguing that you've seen kind of that friction point in the business and you're trying to remove that friction point. Are you running that payment option internally or are you using an outside payment agency that's working with you on those or both? Uh, so we have the essentially four ways to pay. We have the Midas credit card, you know, which is a great option for people that are have good established credit. And then like there's different advantages, you know, membership, you know, kind of rewards that they can get for doing that. And then we offer three secondary financing. So like a buy now, pay later, that's run through other companies, you know, where the main advantage to us is that we're able to get the sale and then they're able to, you know, if the customers don't pay it off in the 90 to 101 days, then obviously they accrue the, the interest and then they benefit from that payment scheme. But for us, I mean, like we want, we know that, you know, a lot of people don't, everything's expensive, you know, like a, for sure. taking the kids to Chick-fil-A is like, you know, $60 now and, you know, automotive repairs are the same, you know, brakes are very expensive and, you know, people need their cars and lower income people as men because they predominantly work in, in person uh, work fields, you know, like it's essential that we provide options to get them back on the road and safely, you know, because I mean, I was just out at the store the other day and a guy got towed in and he declined the work and to include a battery and the battery died. So he had to get $300 tow job to our location. And then he had to get the, you know, $1,500 in repairs to his car. So he just paid $1,800 instead of 1500. So I feel like in some ways we failed him because we weren't able to, you know, provide the options that he needed to get them done at the time. And then he ended up having to pay him anyway and pay an extra $300. So. It's interesting. When you talked about acquiring other franchisees, how much of your growth is going to be through acquisitions and how much of it is going to be organic? Uh, I mean, the long-term growth is all driven by getting, um, you know, acquiring other franchisees that are looking to exit the business. There's, you know, like a lot of the service-based industries, there's a lot of baby boomer generations that like maybe their kids want to work at Instagram or Meta or you know, don't want to go into the blue collar field. So, you know, like, or they just, a lot of them are just tired of dealing with the stuff that we've been talking about, like personnel and, you know, training and automation and everything. So they're looking to exit. So Brian, that's the other advantage of the franchisee model is that it's like a very fast transition systems are, you know, like 90% the same. 
Um, the way that we drive the sales process is a little bit different, but all the automation and everything's the same. So we can quickly, you know, within 30, 60, 90 days, we can have taken over company, you know, of anywhere from three to 11 shops and have them up and running and be an install in our process. And then I think organically, we're looking to grow about 15% this week, or I'm sorry, this year. So, you know, for us, there's a couple of key drivers, like we can either sell more per ticket or we can see more cars. So we choose both. So we want to get more cars in. Choosing both. Yeah. I mean, we want to, you know, because in the end, like everything that we're recommending is either, you know, safety stuff or maintenance stuff. So it's either your stuff's broken or it, you, you know, do this maintenance, you know, don't wait till you have a heart attack to start walking and eating your vegetables. So same thing for us, like don't wait till your car is broken down. So, I mean, a lot of it's just explaining the why and building the rapport and, you know, all the general same thing for the sales process. So if we can help more people get out of there safely, then they're driving on the same roads you and I are. That's a win for everybody. I like it. And then if, you know, then for us, I think getting more cars in, being better on the phones, internet appointments, that also is going to, we'll be able to help more people, put more money in our team's pocket and then grow the business. Interesting. I like it. It makes a lot of sense. So what you're thinking about it as well. Um, question on the automotive industry just itself. Is there any threat or risk in the industry with so many of these vehicles now becoming like autonomous vehicles or electric vehicles? Yeah. Is that reducing the repairs and the the maintenance or the repairs and the work that you guys are doing? Or is, is there still just such a big market out there that it doesn't matter yet? Uh, I mean, the average vehicle on the road is 11 years. So, I mean, like even with ICE vehicles, internal combustion engines, I mean, we have a long runway, but I mean, we're definitely, we want to be at the cutting edge of the technology and the transition. So, you know, like it does require equipment upgrades, you know, like you have to have different pads on the lifts because you have like a massive battery shelf that's on the bottom of the car instead of the engine. So, um, you know, like we do have to do some lift conversion. We do have to be able to get some lifts that can lift heavier things. You know, like nobody really knows how the battery and the exchange and everything is going to work. And, but, you know, like they also do burn through tires faster. So there's an opportunity because of the heavy weight of the vehicles. So, I mean, like we're looking at, we're definitely looking and TBC as a corporation is looking at how to stay ahead of the curve and how to be able to help all the customers. But there is a long runway, but I mean, like we don't take that for granted. I like it. All right, Colin, let's go back to the 21, 22 year old you, you know, maybe you're just starting off in the military, you're just starting off like in business. What advice would you give the 22 year old that you know, you know, to be true today, but you wish you'd known back then? Uh, I think I've been so lucky in my life that I've like happened into <laughs> the right situation with uh, the right people. But I mean, I would say, if my kids were 21 or 22, or for myself, then I would say like, Go to the best organization you can possibly get into and get the best mentor that you can and work the most amount of hours. I mean, this is going to, people are going to disagree with this, but like work the most amount of hours that you can learning during those early years, because there's going to come a time when you don't want to be up at midnight grinding, you know, trying to learn something when you've got three young savages running around your house and you're you know, throwing Pokemon cards everywhere and, you know, like going to sports and everything. But if you put that time in early, then it's your baseline. And, you know, like if you start hard, it's easier to get easy than it is to start where, you know, like maybe you're working three or four days a week, you know, for a couple hours. And then you got like a working, half working Friday and everything. Like it's hard to 
it's hard to go up. It's easier to go down. And like, once you build that tolerance, you know, it's no different than physical fitness. Like once you can run five miles, then three miles is easy, you know, but yeah, I think that's a hard thing to do because, you know, like for me, I was lucky in that I joined the military and they're like, you don't have a choice. Like you're going to immediately deploy after nine 11, and then you're going to immediately deploy for the invasion. And then you know, like my first deployment as an officer in the army, I deployed for 15 months where I worked basically every day, except for four days. And then like a 10 day leave when I came home. But I mean, like I worked every single day for 10 to 18 hours a day, but it's like, after that, everything's easy. Right. That's what I'd say. Like get to the best organization you can. I love that. I love the baseline that you're building becomes kind of compounding as well. So, well, it sounds to me like one of the, one of the best organizations you got involved with was also the SOTA. So we'll definitely link to that in the show notes. Um, Colin Hamill, the Chief Operations Officer for Prenland Automotive. Thanks very much for sharing with us on the Second Command Podcast. Thanks, Cameron. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder, Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like, share, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and our other podcast streaming platforms. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.